What's the most important resource that you have? If you really thought about this deeply, I think you'd come to the same conclusion that Joey and I did. It's time. In our newest book, Wealth Without Wall Street, The Three Steps to Financial Freedom Through Passive Income, we talk about how are we tracking that time? Well, what is the thing that we can do to get more of that time back? That's right. If you've ever been listening to our podcast and thought, man, it would be amazing if I could take all the things that you guys have learned over the last 10 years and just summarize them, put them in some way to easily digest them and take action, that's what this book is all about. You're not going to want to miss it. Go to wealthwithoutwallstreet.com forward slash new book and get your copy today. Today's guest, Jeff Stevens, is going to teach you some really, really cool things about how to buy houses and maybe even a unique way to buy your own primary residence. Uh, Russ, you always have like interesting stories. So tell me, how did you buy your first house? Well, Jeff, the, the interview today actually teaches you how to buy houses that are not on the market. And Joey, I was ahead of the game, right? This was, <laughs> this is like 2003 that we were buying our first house. Okay. I bought my first house that was not on the market. Okay. What do now, you mean? It was a little bit unintentional. So we literally call a real estate agent at the real estate place. She goes out and she starts showing us houses. We had a, a budget of a hundred thousand dollars at the time. That was a lot of money. To High roller. Big time. Right. <laughs> and, and we're, we're looking at houses around Birmingham and I felt like I was going to get mugged, shot, robbed, you know, whatever. When we were just looking at the houses, and I was like, yeah, this is not going to work. And she said, well, I got two or three other houses I can show you, but they're a little bit out of town. I mean, it felt like we were driving to Atlanta, but <laughs> we didn't get quite to Atlanta. Um, but they were definitely in the suburbs. Uh, and we get out there. And so we start looking at houses a little bit nicer, neighborhoods, a little bit nicer houses, but still not what you want, right? So we'd probably gone through like eight houses. And I was getting tired. I was thinking, man, we just, this is not going to work. So we pull up to this, the, she said, this is going to be the last house we go see. We pull up in the yard. And I'm like, wow, look at this yard. It's like a, it was on a corner lot. It's probably an acre, well manicured. Wow. We walk up to the door. Uh, you know, the realtors always knock on the door, just make sure the homeowner's not there. Well, sure enough, she knocks on the door and, you know, like your grandmom answers the door. And is like, hey, how's it going? <laughs> and she's like, oh, um, yeah, um, we we were going to. Like, look at the house. I, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't know you were here. She goes, oh, honey, don't worry about it. It's fine. Come on in. <laughs> and so we're like, okay, whatever. So we start walking in and, and she's like, I can show you guys around. You want me to show you, you want to go see the pool? And, and I was like, pool. <laughs> like, heck yeah. As soon as, she, as soon as she says that, Joey, our realtor uh, hits us on the shoulder and says, yeah, um, I tell you what, I'm, I'm going to walk outside for a second. And, and make a quick phone call. Why don't you guys just go look around? I'm like, okay, you could tell that she was a little bit disturbed by what was going on. Yeah. So we're walking around. We go outside. I'm like, man, pool. Like, it was awesome. Game on. She's showing us the house, and it just had the bones to it. It wasn't perfect. You know, no $100,000 house is. But I'm like, man, compared to everything else we looked at, this was the penthouse. We were living it up, right? <laughs> So we, my real, uh, real estate agent comes back in and is like, yeah, did you guys see me? We're like, yeah, this is really great. And we're like, well, thank you so much for letting us show it. And the lady was like, yeah, no problem. It's pretty weird. I just put, they just put the sign in the yard an hour ago. What? And I was like, oh, wow, man, this is awesome. So we walk outside and real estate agent says, uh, yeah, guys, um, this house is actually not even on the market yet. The house that I was showing, we're going to take you to is six houses down. 
Uh-oh. And I was like, dang, <laughs> no wonder that thing was so nice. Figures. <laughs> it couldn't fit in our budget. So we we drive down the street and we walk around this other house like, no, this is this thing didn't have a pool. It didn't have a nice yard. At this point, you're you're way behind oh, compared man. to we, that. We, one. we have now test drove something nicer, <laughs> right? That that idea of a luxury once enjoyed becomes a necessity. Mm. This house became a necessity. So we went to dinner that night. We did the little Benjamin Franklin pros and cons list. And we're like, all right, what, what's the price on this house? And she's like, well, I, I finally got to I talked to the real estate agent. They hadn't even put it in MLS yet. And they were going to put it on the market for one eleven. And I was like, ooh, you know, you, you may be laughing like $11,000 rest, but that's like 10% higher than what yeah. we were going to spend. And I was like, all right, let's put an offer in at one oh six. We got it at 108, and I was swimming by the end of the month. Man, look at you. You just happened upon a deal that was off the market. I, I literally did. Our real estate agent was a complete moron, <laughs> but it totally worked out in our favor because she probably wouldn't even show us that house because it was 10% over what I said our top price point was. And there's no telling what you can get when you're looking for houses not on the market. And I think today's interview is going to be much more interesting than that story. But it's also going to show you how to buy a house off the market and potentially be not only an investment opportunity, but also something you can do for your primary house. Yeah, I, I love to hearing Jeff talking about how just being a little bit different than the rest of the crowd of investors out there could give you such a huge advantage when it comes to building a rental portfolio to getting to financial freedom. That's ultimately where this where this kind of falls in your journey is are you still looking for that course, that path to build your passive income? Maybe it's through long-term rentals and maybe this is the way to do it. So I think you're going to pick up a lot of nuggets from Jeff as you, as in the name of his company, the thoughtful real estate investor, you're going to pick up. He's very um, empathic. Like he wants to understand situations with each seller and then make sure it works for him and them. He looks for win-wins. Anyways, what else would you add to that? No, these are all great takeaways, Joey, and I don't want to waste any more opportunity. I want to share Jeff with you. Let's jump into our interview with Jeff Stevens. Welcome to the Wealth Without Wall Street podcast, your guide to understanding how to get out of the Wall Street rat race and start your own mailbox money lifestyle. Now, don't let these handsome Southern draws fool you. These financial minds are teaching our country to enhance savings, increase cash flow, and create passive income, all without the help of Wall Street. Are you ready to break through? Now here are your hosts, Russ Morgan and Joey Murray. Are you looking for ways to implement ideas, get exposure to new ones, and be surrounded by people on the same journey as you? Joey, where can they go to do that? Go to wealthwithoutwallstreet.com forward slash community. You can join for free today. Welcome, and I hope you are ready to think with today's guest, Jeff Stevens, the thoughtful real estate entrepreneur. Jeff, so glad to have you on the show, man. Oh, I'm, I'm honored to be here. Thanks for uh, making me part of the show. Well, you said in our pre-show, Jeff, that the greatest compliment that you could receive is being thoughtful. And that obviously holds true with the name of your business. What's behind that? Where did that come from? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for asking. 
Yeah, you know, whenever I would, if, if I would do something, like maybe I sense um, a seller I just talked to a, uh, a thank you card, for instance, if, if they send me an email and say, thanks, it was very thoughtful of you to send that, that word always resonated with me. And, and I thought to myself, like, that's kind of what I want to strive to be more and more and more of all the time. And so then I started to really focus on well, what does thoughtful mean in the context of real estate and how I do it. And it really means two things. One is it's just being really, really intentional about what we're doing at all, why we're doing what we're doing, where are we trying to take this thing instead of just going out and kind of doing deals and flailing around and, and trying to take a lot of action, but without a lot of purpose. So it was being very deliberate and intentional. And then the second thing though, the thoughtful part is really more about empathy. Um, what I do is very people oriented. I like to say that we're always shopping for people who have properties more than we're shopping for properties. And the whole approach to the conversation, the negotiation is much more about the people. And so I think the empathy side of there, you have to stop and think and just be thoughtful about what is the other person? What do they care about? What are they thinking about? What are their perceptions? And then take the whole approach that way. So that's what thoughtful means to me. Well, you, you kind of hold yourself out there as the anti we buy houses guy, which I love by the way, because <laughs> we love like slapping people in the face that we're without wall street. Yeah. So what is it about the, we buy houses group or model just model that you disagree with? Yeah. We'll just, we'll just go right into the offensive part of all this. Right, <laughs> I love right it. This away. is the part that excites me. <laughs> Um, okay, so I, I believe generally speaking, and um, these are generalizations, but I think when people uh, who are not in real estate see a sign that says we buy houses, it, it's like a, a, a button that they push that like it paints a whole picture in their mind. Now, for better or for worse, whether it's accurate or not, that, those words and that approach, it kind of, um, it just conjures up a, a particular idea. Um, and that's not an idea that I have ever felt like I wanted to be associated with. There was a time very early in my career, way, you know, way before I turned into the thoughtful real estate entrepreneur, but you know, <laughs> when I was just like, you know, scrambling around trying to figure it out like everybody else. And I did certain things that like the real estate investing industry just says you're supposed to do, you know, you send yellow letters and you put up bandit signs and you look for distressed people and distressed properties and stuff. And all of that stuff just felt super gross to me. I, I felt terrible about myself, right? Which is, it says more about me than it does about, you know, the tactics necessarily, but it just was not, it was not a fit for me at all. I felt, I just felt gross. I felt sleazy. And uh, so when I started then kind of putting together my thoughts about like, well, how do I explain what it is I want to teach people on a podcast or whatever? I had to like take something people could already relate to and then try to uh, position what I was trying to, talk about in relation to what they already understood. Everybody kind of knows what the we buy houses thing is. And so I felt like, well, if I said, you know, that's on one end of the spectrum, well, what we're doing is really on the other end, maybe that would help clarify a little bit, but I'm not sure if it's worked or not. Well, let's talk about what, you know, if the we buy houses is looking for people who are distressed and needing out, and it's about buying the house at the lowest price. And you say you're at on the other end, Talk about similarities and differences in what you do, because I think today's podcast is really interesting because you focus on buying properties um, with seller financing. And yeah. I, I want to like bring that out, but I would love to kind of compare and contrast 
what your style is and the things that you do and teach others to do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I don't think there's anything intrinsically wrong with um, with distressed properties or quote motivated sellers, right? Because the, the positive spin on that whole thing is these people are in need of a solution and a real estate investor shows up and, and they give them the solution that they need to kind of get out of that problem. Um, you know, the, the less positive uh, way of thinking of it is that it's exploitative. And I don't really, honestly, I don't get too hung up in either of those things, to be honest with you. What I focus on is the fact that a quote motivated seller or a distressed property might as well have like neon signs up on the roof going, Hey, come talk to me about giving me a low offer. You know, like it just, it attracts anybody and everybody. Like it doesn't take any, um, like real sophistication to see those signs and go like, Oh, wait a minute. Maybe, maybe there's an opportunity to buy something low so I can later sell it high. It's very, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's very, very simplistic. And what I like actually is I like to be able to sit down in the living room with a seller and, um, not feel like there's a lot of competition, not, not feel like that. Oh, they've received four offers this week. They're going to, they're expecting two more. They're going to sort through them. That's a very, very commoditized transactional type of approach. I would much rather just sit down in their living room and know that we're just having a conversation We're we're exploring something. And I, I have this opinion that like no seller, enters into a conversation unless they are motivated. So if you go out into the real estate investing, you know, world or Facebook groups or whatever, people always say like, oh, I'm trying to look for motivated sellers. And I keep finding people that aren't that motivated. And my response to them is always that if they called you back from a letter you sent them or something, they are motivated. The question isn't whether they're motivated. The question is whether you have the sophistication or savvy to be able to uncover what that motivation is, because it might not be blindingly obvious, you know, like a, a house that hasn't had the lawn mowed in a year. So I want to make this very practical for somebody hearing this for the first time, maybe. So everybody is kind of familiar with that. We buy ugly houses or we buy houses model. And they, it is kind of like this idea that, oh man, somebody's being taken advantage of in this process and the other person's winning. Yeah. Explain how maybe an example of a, a deal where you went into it and maybe they've been talked to by other people and it didn't work out because for whatever reason, and then you being able to kind of filter it through the way you think about real estate, were able to make a solution happen. Is that, mm -hmm. is that a fair question? Like, can you, do you have an example like that you could share that maybe make it more real? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and actually this is a really great way to naturally segue into talking about um, seller financing too. So I'm thinking of a scenario where uh, I bought a fiveplex a few years ago and the, I had sent a letter. It was my standard thing. I sent a nice letter to, uh, to this person and he calls me back and he says, yeah, I got your letter. I'd be interested in talking to you about it. Uh, right on the phone, he says, yeah, you know, the tax records say this thing's worth a million bucks, but I just think that's out of sight. And I was like, oh, really? What do you mean by it's out of sight? And he's like, oh, I just, I don't see how it could possibly be worth that much. Like, okay. All right. Man, that is I like exactly this. what that's you want to hear. call you on right there. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, and actually as a, as a little side note, like it's so important not to make assumptions about what people are saying too. And just like, keep my mouth quiet, ask him to clarify. Oh, really? You know, 
tell me more, you know? And then, <laughs> then he says this thing that of course I'm, I'm really glad to hear. So later that afternoon, I'm, I'm at his house, right. And sitting there talking to him and his wife in their, in their living room. And um, he mentions that he had been receiving a, an offer from actually a real estate broker for a, a few months. And this offer was a little bit lower than what he felt the property was worth. And I said, well, would you, would you mind just so I have a frame of reference, like telling me what that offer uh, was that you didn't like so much. And he said, I, you know, I'd really rather just, I'd rather have you come up with your best number and, and, and let me know. And I said, oh, okay. Okay. And, uh, but I really, I didn't really want to take that for an answer. So I had to keep figuring out other ways to ask him like the same question in new ways. And so then he mentioned that he had countered and he just never really heard back from that other buyer. And I said, okay, well, I know you don't want to um, share the, the, the price or whatever the, the other offer was. Would you mind telling me what you countered at that they never responded to? And he's like, oh, sure. And so, <laughs> and, and the answer was um, 850. And I thought, okay, okay, that's great. And as we started to talk more, now I knew, I knew at this moment before I ever showed up at this person's doorstep that I was, expecting that there could be an opportunity for seller financing. And I was hoping for it, but I don't want to just show up and walk through the door. It's like, here's Jeff's agenda. Let me start asking you the questions about this. I want to uncover from him all of the, the clues that will then allow me to propose seller financing to him, but make it not look like it's what I wanted at all, but it's what he wanted. So I was asking him about, you know, so are you planning to do maybe a 1031 exchange? You're just going to sort of suck it up and, and, you know, pay the capital gains tax. You know, you've owned this thing 30 years. And he said, no, and we really don't want to pay the capital gains tax. We don't want to do the 1031 exchange. As part of what we didn't like about the other offer was we were just going to get cashed out and have to pay the bill. And, you know, my ears are just going ding, 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 ding. Oh my God, this is amazing. This is exactly what I was hoping for. But I didn't want to just show up and start talking about what I want immediately. So I put all this together and I said, okay, sir, let me just see if I understand then. Is it safe to say that if I could give you the price that you countered the other buyer at, but we structured it in a way that you didn't have to have this capital gains, we kind of use a seller financing tactic because he, he already knew that was the solution too. Is it safe to assume that would be a good thing for you? And he's like, yes, it would. So that afternoon, uh, we got it written up, but it came because the other person was not listening to what he wanted. Like his, his literally his number one thing was I don't want to pay the capital gains. I want to structure this deal to feather it out over a lot of time. And so, but I, I did hear that and I was super excited to hear that. And then we put the deal together uh, as a result. Well, That's right, so such that, a great example. So from a practical standpoint, you went, went into the property knowing that I, I want to buy it. You probably had an estimate of what you wanted to pay for it. But you wanted it seller finance because your end goal when you buy a property, seller finance, what do you do with it the majority of the time? Um, I'm mostly a long-term rental guy. And so okay. I, I plan to just put this into my rental pool. The location was incredible. The property itself, not the most beautiful piece of architecture in the world, but the location was really good extremely close. I mean, what quick walk to my, a lot of my other properties. Yeah. So it had kind of a strategic purpose as well, but yeah, long-term rental. All right. So you, you went in, you said, all right, this is a five plex. You probably had already evaluated the, the rental rate for each unit. And so you kind of had an idea of if I do seller financing, if I can get these terms, 
then it makes it a good deal for me to do it on my rental side. Yeah. I, so I have, I have this rule of my, uh, for myself that is something has to be awesome about every deal I do. Something has to be like fall out of your chair good. And that could be a lot of different things. It could be the location. It could be the beauty and the quality and the romance of the building. It could be the price, obviously. It could be some element of the terms. You know, like I'll pay a, a, a very benign market rate price if I can put $7 down, right? I mean, that by itself is so ridiculously awesome that I, <laughs> I would then... It's like an it's like a algebraic equation. Like I'll I will just solve for awesome. Like fine, I don't care about the rest of the terms. We're just we're gonna you know we're gonna isolate the seven dollar down payment, and the rest it doesn't really matter too much. And in this case, um, the location was awesome. The building itself wasn't awesome. I could already tell the price was going to be reasonable from the very first conversation we had. And now we're getting to the seller financing thing. So there were actually multiple levels of awesome in this particular case. And when you say seller financing, so I think traditionally people think about real estate in terms of price only, right? They think, yeah. oh, I got a great price on this property. So that means I win. But in your case, you're, you've got a more sophistication to be able to look at that. If I got a good price on a property, but then I had to go get bad terms mm -hmm. <laughs> because the financing options weren't very good, I still don't win. So in this case, you could say, man, I didn't necessarily get the lowest possible price, but I got great terms. What Explain what great terms would be for somebody learning this maybe for the first time. Okay. There, there are a lot of levels um, to this answer. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with um, kind of the simplest level, but then I'll just tease the, the PhD level if, if I can, real, like real quickly, um, not to imply that I'm a PhD. I'm just saying that there's, there's a more uh, exciting element to this too. But Come on, doctor, just hit us with it, doctor. All right, Come on. all right, all right. So um, seller financing, first of all, the, the seller financing is a massive umbrella of a lot of different things, right? We've got... Uh, lease options and subject twos and also all sorts of creatives. It's basically anything where there's not a bank or a giant duffel bag of cash that you brought to the closing table. Right. And so if the seller is involved in any way, you could probably call that seller financing. What I do primarily is, is I just, I buy the property and I make payments to the seller over time. I become the owner and they become the beneficiary of a promissory note. And so it's, it's a fairly simple structure. But if you think about what defines a promissory note, there's a lot of different bullet points, you know, so to speak, in a, in a promissory note. There's certainly the thing what everybody would be first thinking about is an interest rate. Uh, there's a down payment. There is a payment structure. There is a, a duration of term. There is, um, you know, whether there'll be uh, taxes and insurance will be escrowed. How does the person receive the money? When does the interest start accruing? When do the payments start? There's a lot of different things. And so I think of this as, um, have you ever seen, uh, you, you might be sitting in front of one right now, a, a big mixing board at an audio studio. There's like a thousand knobs on this thing. And you're like, oh yes. my God, what do all these knobs do? But a promissory note, it's kind of like the same thing. There's, there's all these different things that you can tweak. And if, if the seller is really feeling, you know, like this interest rate thing, they're like, nah, it needs to be four, not 3.75. Then, okay, great. Maybe we twist this other knob just a little bit to balance it, to balance it out. So the, to answer your question simply, the great thing about seller financing is you actually get to look at all the knobs and have some say in all of them. Whereas if you're just talking to Wells Fargo, they're like, here's our program. You literally have zero say in any of these terms at all. The only say you have is yes or no, not 
what, what if interest started accruing 27 days from closing instead of at closing, because I need a little time to repair this unit, which you know is decreasing the, you know, the income and all, all this kind of stuff that we can tweak and adjust. It's, it's like a tailor, you know, you can buy your clothes off the rack or you can go to a tailor um, and a tailor is certainly going to do a better job of, of creating something that looks as good as it possibly can and meets both parties needs. Yes, they I, do. Simple, I don't know yes. about that. I don't know if I agree, Jeff. Yes, they I, do. I mean, Joey. I, that J. Crew I'm wearing versus yeah. Russ's tailoring. I mean, I, yes, they do. I think the person inside the clothes really, <laughs> you know, makes it. So Russ has to overcompensate if so, sometimes. So let's talk about like in this example with just kind of staying on this fiveplex. So yeah. you went to him. His thing was price to some degree. His thing was. Capital gains. Didn't want to pay the capital gains rate. So how long do you typically create terms with somebody? For for this example, how long was he willing to hold the note for you? And are the majority of the deals you're you're getting, are you are they holding the note until what you think would be the completion of the property? Or do you have an expectation of going back in and refinancing, refinancing. that out with a traditional bank at some point? Uh, my answer is that I negotiate the longest note I possibly can. I mean, if they do 117 years, I'm in, you know, <laughs> the, pretty much the shortest time I will ever do is about seven years. Okay. I would say on average might end up being probably about, about 10. And, and there's a couple reasons for that. Most of these people want to take their capital gains problem and punt it, but they don't want to punt it hundred yards. They want to punt it like 20 yards. You know, they, they yeah. just want to deal with it right now. Um, a lot of the people that I buy properties from are, I, I, I don't know what, exactly why, but I bet if we drew a chart, it would be 70. They'd be average like 70. And so at that point, they're like, well, I don't, I don't think I want to sign up for a 30-year note. Right. But they end up with like a 10-year kind of an average would be, that would be typical for me. And on, on that, are you doing uh, like a 10-year AM or is it, I'm going to pay you for 10 years, but we're amateur, amateurizing it over 20, 30 or, or longer period? Yeah, good question. So that too is just, that's one of the little dials on the, on the conversation that we can adjust. What I would like to see happen would be that my payments are interest only or yeah. more. Like I have the opportunity to pay more if I want to, but my minimum committed payment each month is an interest only payment, which is important uh, for a few reasons. One is it, it effectively allows me to amortize it however I want to, and even change that amortization over time, right? I can make extra principal payments when I want to. Um, but also in my market, you know, I'm out here on the left side of the, of the U S and the, uh, the old rent to price ratio is not awesome, uh, on our, on our deal. So we actually need to keep our debt service low so that we can maintain, you know, a, a reasonable level of cash flow. And then is your expectation down the road to get a bank to come back and refinance out and, and pay them off? Um, possibly. Um, my goal is to never work with a bank if I don't have to. Um, yes. Yeah. I love hearing that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I will do an opportunistic bank refinance if I, if, you know, if I don't really need it and they're offering something that's great for me, then I will pursue that. But I don't want to ever put myself in a position where I have to. So my goal with these properties with seller financing would be either, if I get to the end of that term, would be either to maybe sell the property um, possibly to refinance it. I actually might refinance it with somebody else's private money instead. But, um, you know, these are longer term notes. I mean, 10 years, like I'm saying on average. So we, have, we don't have a lot of, you know, uh, maturity dates that are, are coming up all the time. It's, they're pretty, 
pretty infrequent. But if we had to turn to a bank, we could, but you know, yeah, I, I've always looked to find ways to not do that. I love it. You're, you're just music to our ears. You know, we want to become the bank. We don't want to go to the bank. <laughs> yes. The wealth of Wall Street. So, um, so, so I want to transition really quick because one of the things it's actually in the same vein, but your most recent podcast talked about how to buy your primary residence yeah. in a way like this, using this creativity and the seller financing uh, vehicle, uh, a case study. Could, could you share with us, like for somebody listening, they get fired up about this idea. Maybe they say, I would love to apply this to my personal situation. Yeah, and is then it, is there maybe, a way to do that? Yeah. How could somebody mm -hmm. do that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great, great point. So I, I've been an entrepreneur a long time. I, I don't really have a W-2. My wife does have a W-2, but we're, we're not the kind of people who just waltz into U.S. Bank and be like, hey, look at me. I'm the perfect candidate, right? <laughs> so if we, if we want to move, I'm going to have to figure out something kind of creative. So about uh, maybe a year and a half ago, we started this process. And so we, I said, I'm just going to do exactly what I do for investment deals for our primary residence, but we're going to be hyper, hyper focused. So the first thing we did is we said, like, what exactly do we want? in a property? And then how can I translate those attributes into something I can ask my title company to query the database of county records for? So in other words, like we, we knew we wanted to live in kind of an uh, established neighborhood with big, big trees. We didn't want little saplings that had just been planted, for instance. We just wanted that feel. So I, my list said, okay, well, I want homes built before, say, the year 1990, because that means those neighborhoods are going to be, you know, more mature. And so yeah. we went through this whole process and said, what are these attributes? But the number one attribute that was most important to me actually had nothing to do with the property. It was all about the person who owned the property because the, the number one thing that was going to unlock my ability to do this deal was if I could make payments to the seller over time, which, and that's my, that's my secret sauce anyway. So really we, we asked for a list that was primary or that was entirely absentee owners. So basically people who own rental properties. And people who owned rental properties for uh, a long time, like in this case, I think we asked for 10 years or more. So now I've got a, a small list of people in very specific geographic parts of town that are landlords of properties they've owned for a while. And all of that together means they have capital gains problems. And people who have capital gains problems are way more amenable to uh, the idea of seller financing. And also secondarily, they have rental properties probably because they like income. So if they sell the rental property, there goes the income. So we come along and it's like, this is the perfect solution. It helps you defer your capital gains. It continues to give you an income stream. So we, we pulled a list. And in this case, the list was really quite small. It was maybe two or 300 people uh, and their properties. And we screened them as a small enough list. So we could just screen each one individually. And then we just simply sent a letter. We sent the same letter we basically sent to, to anybody. And this, this, one particular seller, I mean, we got a lot of calls, but this one particular seller called back and it, it seemed pretty quickly like this was going to be a good fit. He was more than open to the idea of having me, me make payments to him over time. Um, so here's where it got a little bit more creative is that he said, we agreed on a price and he said, I want uh, $150,000 down. I said, okay, I think that's reasonable. That was about 25% or so. Certainly, it's about one hundred and forty-nine thousand more than I really wanted, you know. But I was like, "Well, I can understand <laughs> more than know, seven dollars." Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Dang it! So, and I just didn't have the liquidity at that moment. So I said, "Well, how about this? 
what if we do, what if we lease this property from you with the option to buy to begin with? I'll give you $20,000 as an option fee now. And, and we'll have, you know, 18 months or so to exercise our option. And it'll give me a little time to go put together the other funds. And when I've got that extra 130, then I'll come back to you and I will exercise my option to buy the property and I will become the owner and you will be the beneficiary and we'll make payments to you uh, over time that way. So that's basically what we did. We basically put two creative deal structure, seller financing uh, programs like like back to back. So the first one was this lease option that allowed us to get in the house and just start living here and start living our lives. Put a little, give me a little time to throw the rest of the money together. We exercise the option and now we're the owners and he's the beneficiary and we make payments to him each month. That is so cool. I, I love this idea is how, how would someone learn how to do this? Obviously you you've taken you know, 10 years almost, you know, practicing and implementing real estate investing. How does someone who's listening to us right now, who goes, this is interesting. What would I do next? What would you tell them? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. I actually think there's, there's some learning and there might be some unlearning that has to happen. Um, because what <laughs> I'm talking about is it's pretty different than I think a lot of the mainstream real estate investing education. Oh, for and, sure. And, uh, there's nothing wrong with the mainstream real estate investing education, but it does kind of make you think like, okay, the key to success is you buy something for more and you, or you buy it low and then you sell it high. And, you know, you buy properties when the bank will allow you to buy properties. And it, the most important thing is to have a good agent and all that kind of stuff. And like everything I'm talking about, it's really kind of the opposite. So the first, the, the first thing I guess is somehow opening up your mind to the idea that maybe all those paradigms, are one way of looking at it, but that there could be a completely different way of looking at it too. I know I mentioned before, like just one of the simple headline kind of shifts is stop shopping for a property and instead start shopping for a person. That would be one simple paradigm shift, but easier said than done. There's not a ton of content that I'm aware of that's that's out there. I mean, that's what I'm trying like for my podcast and stuff like that to be a voice that just plants those seeds with in people's minds about different ways of, uh, of doing things. But I think at the end of the day, if, even if we set seller financing aside, what it really all comes down to is, are you willing to get good at the art of sitting in someone's living room and just having a conversation and exploring the options? And I think what we do is it's very much a left brain, right brain thing that they, they really come together. It's not so much only about deal analysis. It's about asking good questions, reading between the lines of the answers of those questions, listening for clues that then you can use to, you know, like in my fiveplex story, I got all the, the inputs I needed from the seller so that when I proposed seller financing to him, it wasn't about like, well, here's what Jeff wants. It's about, here's what you told me you wanted to accomplish, sir. Here's an idea I have that I think could get you there. So I'm not sure if that eloquently answers the question, but um, it's like an education and an uneducation process, I think in this. Well, and besides your podcast, are there any other resources or courses or anything like that that you would recommend? Um, I, you know, I learned most of what I know how to do from having a coach, uh, Greg Pinio, who's at that event, you know, where I met you guys as well. So he's got education courses and programs and events and stuff like that. And, and so that's, I would certainly highly, highly recommend that kind of stuff. I think there, there are books about seller financing and, and all of that. So I think you can learn some of the technical tools on, on all of that, but you know, tools are tools in a toolbox. And it, 
there's the application of those tools that really matters. And I think that that's one thing where you kind of have to, you can't necessarily read that in a book. You have to get out there and, and practice the art of applying those tools with, with real people in real life situations. That's really cool. Well, man, this is so good, Jeff. Thank you so much for sharing this. I, I hope that people will come and interact with you um, both in our community, but also uh, go check out your podcast, Racking Up Rentals, and you. you know, go to your website and try to you know, see if this is something that would help you get closer to financial freedom. If they wanted to reach out to you or, or find out more, where would you point them to? Yeah, thank you very much. Our website is thoughtfulre.com. You know, we've got Facebook groups and stuff like that too. But if we go to just go to thoughtfulre.com would be a good, a good hub. Awesome. Man, Jeff, it was awesome to meet you at, uh, at the Brian trip event that we, we were both in in October and, and now to, uh, kind of come full circle, have you on the podcast and share you with the audience. Uh, really grateful for your time today. Oh, thank you for your interest in this approach. I hope, uh, <laughs> I hope it made sense to people and, uh, maybe just gets the wheels turning in a slightly different way. No doubt. No doubt. Well, thank you as always for listening to the show and have an amazing day. This has been the Wealth Without Wall Street podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show to break free of the Wall Street mindset and begin building wealth on your own terms in places you understand so that your wealth will never run dry. See you next episode.